figuring out strategies that will help you to adapt to the cognitive issues. You can't fix these things right away. So it's more important rather than rehabilitating immediately to adapt to the issue and to be successful with the adaptation. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 198 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. And that includes you. So for today, I am just delighted to introduce you to Vanessa Gorlkin. Vanessa, did I say that right? It's Gorlkin, but I think you made a really good try. <laughs> Vanessa Gorlkin. Okay, we've said it. got it. it. Gorelkin, Vanessa Gorelkin. Vanessa has a BA from Brandeis University and a master's degree in, is it Brandeis? Yes. <laughs> Oh my God. Normally at the beginning, I go through all of the things that I want to make sure I'm pronouncing right, but we forgot because we had tech problems. Yes, it's okay. Vanessa has a BA from Brandeis University and a master's degree in occupational therapy from New York University. I can say that, Vanessa, my kids go there. (laughs) I know, I know. I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah. An experienced occupational therapist, Vanessa has worked as the administrator of NYU's Department of Orthopedic Surgery and as a senior vice president of operations at a New York Planned Parenthood affiliate. Vanessa and her family, which includes an ADHD husband and an ADHD son, relocated to sunny Arizona in 2014. 
There, she joined the Mayo Clinic to work with outpatients with chronic illness and stressors. She is now an instructor at the Mayo Medical School and the Mayo Cancer Center and is an associate in their Academy of Academic Excellence. Vanessa has a private telehealth practice and provides both treatment and coaching services through video visits. She is passionate about occupational therapy as a key to unlocking the potential of people with ADHD. So, Vanessa, you do not have ADHD, correct? That's correct. But I live with it every day and have done for the past 21 years because I am married to a husband who has ADHD and my 18-year-old son has ADHD. And of course, in my career, I work with people who have ADHD. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your family and how their diagnoses came about? And then I'd like to know, I shouldn't be asking two questions at one time, but you know, ADHD. I'd like to know how it impacted you in your decision to work with ADHD adults. Well. Okay, so my husband, um, since the time he was around kindergarten age, was identified as having some learning differences. But, you know, we were born in 1970, both my husband and I. So he wasn't identified as having ADHD until much later, but always had a sense that something was kind of kooky, let's say, with his attention and the way he goes about things, but he worked around that ultimately to become a success in his own right. With my son, starting about elementary age, just around the time that my husband was found to be having some learning difficulties, my son's teachers started noticing that he was having trouble, uh, namely the inattentive type of ADHD complaints, like kind of being a dreamer and very uh, quietly just disengaging from class. And so we had him classically evaluated by a neuropsychologist at that time, and he received the diagnosis of inattentive ADHD. And we went through a bunch of different therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, even physical therapists to work on coordination and things of that nature. And it's just been a big odyssey in terms of education with my son, as a matter of fact. And so how old was your son or around how old was he then? I'd say when he finally got the diagnosis, I want to say he was seven years old. Okay. So pretty young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like your, like your husband, he showed those symptoms fairly early in life. Correct. Kind of and, you know, boy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And you know, as we know now from all of the research and seeing so many women diagnosed later and in adulthood with ADHD, these were two boys. And so they were identified as having learning differences and the learning differences that are typically paid attention to in boys. And we've been much more behind on that with girls and young women, which is why actually I have a practice today where I see so many young women in their mid-20s, mostly, who have a recent diagnosis of ADHD. Yeah, no, you brought a really good point up because, I don't know, was your husband or does your husband believe that he was inattentive as a child as well, rather than that typical, you know, hyperactive boy? Yes, he was also the inattentive type. And as a matter of fact, even as a kindergartner, I want to say early in nursery school, someone brought up the R word. You know, I don't want to use that slur, 
um, uh. about him uh, because he was so inattentive. And I can assure you wow. that um, that was an inappropriate sort of appellation. Uh, you know, that word when he was little was actually used more as a diagnostic type term, but I think it was said off the cuff. Mm -hmm. And I want to say for anyone listening who's feeling discouraged or has a recent diagnosis of ADHD, my husband's a graduate of Columbia University in New York. He figured out the way to yep. uh, get through. <laughs> I love it. So your son and your husband, either one of them, do they also have learning challenges or was it purely in a ton of ADHD? Yes. It, yeah. I'm calling that a learning challenge in the sense of it makes learning challenging to have ADHD, but they mm -hmm. don't have any other compelling diagnoses that sometimes come along with ADHD, like dyslexia or dyscalculia. I, I never say that word out loud. I know. Um, they can do <laughs> And there's two ways to say it, apparently, which makes it even more confusing to me, right? I, and I always pick the third, which is the wrong one. <laughs> that is so interesting because my son was diagnosed with combined type, not until he was 12, but as of nine years old, they were consistently saying they thought it was a learning challenge. So it, it took three years for them to finally say, oh no, it's ADHD. And today I would say he's much more inattentive than, mm. um, hyperactive. Um, so what was that's my point? Really, well, that's really interesting. I heard what you said. I'll, I'll remind oh. you. You were talking about your son. Mm -hmm. And you said that originally when he was um, getting diagnosed or in the process, there was a question of whether there were some learning disabilities that weren't ADHD related. And it took a while to tease that out. And now you experience him and his experience is, I suppose, I don't want to speak for him, is that it's more of an inattentive ADHD picture, which is interesting, I'll add. Well, yeah, go ahead. You, you go ahead first. <laughs> <laughs> However, today he's been diagnosed with dyslexia and he says that he believes it's much more dyslexia than ADHD, but there is still some inattentive ADHD. Like he missed an interview last week. He was like, mom, in my brain, kind of like what I was telling you about you, I, I told Vanessa that I showed up yesterday for the podcast. Someone had rescheduled, and in my brain, I still had, nope, I still have a podcast on Thursday, and it was really today. And he did the same thing with an interview for an internship. So there clearly is some inattention, you know, and I see it daily, but the hyperactivity is pretty much gone. Well, my son, you know, I think as he's become a teenager and perhaps his hormones, Mm -hmm. A lot of different things, but I've seen more of the impulsivity, um, the conversational kind of interrupting type of thing. And also the type of thing that is, I think, pretty well noted with a hyperactive type, which is kind of the knee bouncing, yeah. um, you know, nervous uh, energy movements. And um, so I think all, it's interesting. I mean, people are individuals. And I think that, and that's actually one of the things that I really try to highlight when I talk to somebody with a new diagnosis of ADHD, when they're asking how is it possible that it's taken so long and that they had so many challenges before. And we talk about the fact that sometimes it can be really nuanced and, and challenging, but once you, you know, get a diagnosis, the process is 
how do you make your life work well? One of the things that I'm really starting to believe is, is there really such a thing as inattentive versus hyperactive versus combined type ADHD? Because every single woman that I have ever interfaced with or worked with that is inattentive ADHD, when I am around her or, you know, we're on a Zoom call, I always see movement. And then I also question the whole hyperactivity thing because when you're not hyperactive in your body, like you're not climbing walls, but you know, you're bouncing your knee or you're tapping your pencil or you're hyperactive in your brain, like what you're just constantly thinking, right? All those thoughts. Isn't that all hyperactivity? Like it is starting to not make so much sense to me. I'm curious yeah, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that um, ADHD is in a lot of ways, a sort of catch-all umbrella diagnosis as it is. And so those nuances of um, the, the nervous tics, if you will, or the impulsive type thinking or anxious type symptoms of thinking, um, they all sort of kind of combine into one mix that makes it difficult for ADHD folks to function in the quote-unquote neurotypical world because the neurotypical world is for people who stand in line and color in, you know, in the shades and are very, very good at showing up and doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And that's not people with ADHD who can do what they're supposed to do, but they have new and creative and wonderful ways of doing it. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it any better. So let's talk about occupational therapy. So the only experience I have personally ever had with it was when my son was nine and he went through the first battery of tests and they recommended an occupational therapist. I think his school did. And it was to help him build fine motor skills. He had horrible handwriting, so he had to learn how to hold his pencil. And I remember sitting there in the occupational therapist's office, and my son was on a bouncy ball, and I was on a bouncy ball. And she never said anything about ADHD, you know, but she did comment that Marcus moved a lot. And then she looked at me and says, and you move all the time. So <laughs> I would love to know, I I've never heard of occupational therapy used with respect to ADHD, like I have not heard of a doctor saying, you know, go work with an occupational therapist for ADHD, but just learning a little bit about you, it is now making so much sense to me. So can we start at the beginning? Can you tell us, first of all, what does an occupational therapist do? And then how does that differ from a physical therapist? Yeah, great question. So Occupational therapists can be described as professionals who broadly help people live their lives to the fullest. So you can see an occupational therapist working in neonatal intensive care unit, or you could see uh, an occupational therapist working way at the other end of the lifespan with uh, folks in a nursing home or a retirement home and all the way through the lifespan. This makes uh, understanding and categorizing occupational therapists very difficult. And truth be told, I think my profession has a bit of a PR problem because people like you who do shows like this and are very well versed in ADHD are not even necessarily aware of the value that an occupational therapist 
can bring with our skills. So I don't want to keep talking without letting you respond. No, I, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. So, so tell me, how does an occupational therapist like you work with someone with ADHD? And why don't we know more about people that do what you do? I wish you did. Um, <laughs> and that's I'm our point so here, glad. right? Right. And I'm so glad to, to kind of at least have the opportunity to talk to your audience. Um, occupational therapists are really good at being observers and good at behavioral and activity analysis. So that can be applied in so many different formats. The way I work in my practice is with adults, late teenagers, late adolescents, and all the way through adults on things like time management, sleep hygiene, self-care, uh, basic hygiene sometimes, just remembering to change your clothes. You know, when you're first in college and you go away from your parents, you tell you to shower every day. Sometimes that can go in you know, the garbage bin with other things that you're paying attention to. So we really work all the way from basic self-care up to executive function skills, helping people organize, but in a way that takes into account that their brain functions differently and works best in a different environment than, uh, let's say, writing in an agenda. Sometimes that works, but sometimes that is a terrible failure for somebody with ADHD, as an example. Okay, so then that sounds a lot like an ADHD coach, but there's something that you all do that is different than that, that is in addition to all that. Is it even more intensive? Are you taking the body more into account? Mm -hmm. All of those things, actually. So certainly being able to prescribe an exercise program to identify other mental health Issues, um, oftentimes anxiety and even obsessive compulsive disorder can go along with an ADHD diagnosis. So Absolutely. being aware of those nuances and just bringing the entire, like I'm saying, biopsychosocial model, for lack of a kind of a more commonly used phrase. So bringing everything together. And let me add this as well. This is sort of a curveball, but I will add this. I'm now seeing a lot of people who have long COVID who have ADHD, which is wow. kind of a disastrous combination. And so an occupational therapist, for example, is really well prepared to deal with the medical challenges and understand those issues that are coming along with breathing, with coughing, with voice and things of and swallowing, anything of that nature along with the ADHD coaching model, like you're talking about where you're teaching somebody time management and uh, some executive function skills and working memory. So some interaction, but I would say maybe a more broadly based educational view of the person. And certainly an occupational therapist might be able to add value to an ADHD coaching program if that's not enough for a person who is working with an experienced ADHD coach. Got it. So it really is all-inclusive. You use the term broader-based. Yes. You mentioned exercise, and that's kind of when I thought, oh my gosh, someone like you would be so great. You know, I have a fabulous uh, book coach. I'm writing a book and with a, with a manuscript that's due on October 31st, and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it, but I'm doing it. And <laughs> Whenever I notice that, you know, I send her several chapters at a time to take a look and, and just read through, you know, to make sure that I'm not missing something. 
And whenever I bring up exercise, and she's fantastic, by the way. However, whenever I bring up exercise, she always has a comment in there about, can you recommend something that people with ADHD can do who, you know, like real things like that are in the real world, meaning that to exercise just, you know, it's, it's too much. Normal people can't do that. And I am a huge, I mean, medication does not work for me. But medication, but exercise works incredibly well. And so I'm a huge proponent of exercise. But I think that it's just even changing that word, right? And figuring out what are things that she could do to start with that might ease her into more quote unquote exercise type things like just going for a walk or going out in nature and, you know, paying attention to how she feels. And so I would love for you to talk about that because I know. Weren't you a marathoner? And I mean, you're, yeah, exercise is important to your brain too, I get. It is. It very much is. And, you know, I, I'm fond of saying I've never read a single journal article that says exercise is bad for you. It's like one of the only things that everybody agrees is good for everyone. But yeah. as you're saying, it's like, where is the turnkey to get a person to exercise? And that is a real challenge. Not only for people with ADHD, but uh, sometimes people who just have difficulty getting involved in exercise. That being said, what you said was really critical. Somewhere in what you said, I heard the answer, which isn't simple, but it, it's kind of it's important to the whole idea. And that is ADHD can be characterized as something like intolerance of boredom and things you hate to do. Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, and right. I mean, and, and people with uh, ADHD brains don't do well with having to be forced to do <laughs> something they hate. Right. And so no. where, where is the answer in the reverse? And that's true for everybody, but this becomes a real neurologically significant issue when you are trying to get somebody, uh, a young person to do their homework or quote unquote, sit still. And it's just as difficult to get somebody to do exercise that they hate. And so what can be done, and this is an occupational therapy specialty, is to look at how activities can be used as exercise. For example, uh, you, I don't know you personally, but you may uh, love to clean your house and that could be the perfect thing to have you exercising. Maybe we have you vacuum your floor three times. I procrastinate regularly. (laughs) Or, um, you know, or even things like uh, breaking up laundry. Um, I've actually done this myself just uh, during the pandemic. Like if you have, if you happen to live in a place that has stairs, like I have an upstairs and a downstairs. So the laundry is downstairs. um, My bedroom is upstairs. And so instead of bringing all the laundry up at once, holding a piece and bringing it up and leaving it on the bed and so on. That could cause disorganization as well. But if it's done as an exercise, it sort of folds in a daily activity and gets you moving, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. So you're really looking at, I mean, are you asking them, okay, well, what is it that you really like to do? And can we turn that in? You know, you're getting creative with them, right? Yeah, I would say occupational therapists are extremely creative people as a rule. And before I didn't remember to answer the very important question that you had, 
about the difference between occupational and physical therapy because they are often lumped together and often work very closely together. For example, when I worked at Mayo Clinic, you know, my colleagues were physical therapists and occupational therapists. We worked in the same department. We shared a large workroom together. So um, occupational therapists tend to be your more creative um, uh, people who look at very big picture things. We even tend to be less of the kind of perfectionist, detail-oriented types. Um, and we're not, we don't love the, you know, lift your arm up 15 times <laughs> over your head to get stronger. That's very, you know, physical therapy is born out of exercise science. Occupational therapy is born out of mental health. And so it's, it is different. Uh, the fields work really well together. Uh, but I would say physical therapists are, are great with strengthening uh, and uh, doing things like stretching muscles and things like that. And occupational therapists are great at helping people to figure out how do you get that exercise program folded into your day-to-day. -day. And just before I forget it, I literally was meeting with one of my clients uh, the other day who has long COVID and also has ADHD. And they are struggling very much to be active. And so uh, we determined that they like painting a lot. And so I said, you know, painting is exercise for you. At mm -hmm. this point, when you're so deconditioned, it may not be for everyone, but when it is so difficult to be standing on your feet or using your arms and standing at the same time or what have you, that becomes an exercise. So occupational therapists can help people find their individual way in to having an exercise program that's meaningful and worth it to them. Well, and it would also generate positive emotion, which would spike dopamine, right? Because they're doing mm -hmm. something creative that I'm assuming if they're going to choose painting, they enjoy painting. Yes. Yes. And so I mean, it. absolutely. So I would say to the listener, if you are having struggles with getting yourself to be active, try to think about what are the things you truly enjoy? And what physical activities are associated with that thing? What gives you value? You may not even have to enjoy it as much as find value in it. Like, I'm not sure if I um, enjoy the laundry as much as I find a way to get some more physical exercise if I'm stuck inside by doing the laundry. And that has value to me. I, I know that I don't have ADHD, but I will sort of apply some of those same lessons to getting myself motivated when I'm having difficulty as well. Well, you're proud of yourself, right? When you finish the laundry, it's something you did and you wanted to do it for yourself. Absolutely. And you know what? You bring up such a good point. Skill mastery is so important, especially for people with ADHD. And I'll tell you why. Oftentimes, just like my husband experienced less so with my son, but he did absorb this. People with ADHD feel, you know, I'm going to use a nasty word, stupid. People mm -hmm. call them the R word. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes people really do not understand what makes them tick. I mean, not everybody, but oftentimes they don't fit into the typical educational environment. And so their skills yeah. and abilities and talents don't show in yep. a kind of, you know, my son called school prison, by the way. <laughs> so does my son. Yeah. But so, he's and good employee, I, right? He's such a good, like out there in the real world. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So People with ADHD oftentimes do not get the feeling in schooling 
that they have mastered something. They don't get the positive attention necessarily from the teacher. Great job, Jimmy, you did this paper so well or fantastic uh, coloring, Angela. It's more like, Angela, why did you scribble over that page when you were supposed to color in three squares? You know, and so mastery is so important. And even if it's the little things, like I remember with my son as he was growing up, it was giving him very brief tasks to do. Um, like you put the cups away in the cabinet from the top of the dishwasher. And when he would finish that, when he was little, he would be really proud of himself. He would feel that sense of relief. Like, wow, I did something from start to finish. That's yeah. really cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you praised him for it too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was helpful. And he did become a resident uh, dishwasher and dear um, until now he's kind of dizzy, which he's in community college. And actually, can I comment on that? Because I yeah. feel like it's so important. The educational trajectory for people with ADHD sometimes looks different. Yep. So and I would definitely say with COVID, my son lucked out in this regard. So uh, and I think it's just an important story. Uh my son wanted to be and was capable enough to be in this extremely high-level science STEM uh, honors program in ninth grade, which was in 2020. And so we, and he applied himself. I remember he did all, he was very motivated. He did the application. We walked him through a little, but he did most of it. Well, it turns out when he took that program, it was an absolute nightmare. It was color within the line, stand in a line. This is prison. It was terrible. And uh, no creativity allowed. Nope. And it was totally different than what we thought. So then the pandemic hit and he did online school for a year, which was really pretty disastrous for a number of reasons. But by the time that year was over, we said, you know what? This is not going to work anymore. He's not going back to quote unquote prison. <laughs> Um, in Arizona, they have, uh, we, we were able to get him started in community college at 16. Yeah. Um, and we had to, you know, size up special paperwork and we had to go and do certain things. I don't recommend this for everybody. Uh, but sometimes the educational trajectory is just better to like bail on your quote typical school and see what other educational opportunities there are that work better for you or your child. I totally agree. And there's this thought that because these kinds of kids struggle in school, that they're somehow immature. And they're actually, I mean, of course, you know, they're teenagers. They can be immature in certain areas, but they're actually quite mature. They already see the big picture and they just want to go out in the world and start living instead of being told what to do. 24-7, and it just doesn't fit with, well, we don't like to be told what to do first, but then they can also see in the school system that, how am I going to apply this? How is this going to work for me? It doesn't work for me. So I have that same experience that um, yeah. you had with- that applies, Yeah, that applies with adults too, because adults with ADHD see the world in a way that those of us who are like more typical- in the way we kind of like follow the rules and will go in line and things like that, don't. So, you know, my husband always says when he looks at a menu, he developed a system, <laughs> uh, which which lines up directly with his ADHD. Like when I look at a menu, I look at the appetizers, I look at the entrees, you know, maybe I'll peek at the dessert if it's there on the menu. 
he does this. Th- I don't even Wait, know. At like, the beginning, sure. You do all that at the beginning? Yes. Yeah. The dessert at the beginning? I love, I love dessert. I love dessert. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um, you know, because I'm just examining the entire thing and I'm getting the lay of the land. And there's no right way to do a menu, guys. Okay. Like, I'm not trying to say to your audience. Like, you have to look at the menu from start to finish. That's just how I do it. But the way that he does it, because it's overwhelming to see a menu with, like, you know, 25 things. I don't know what it is. It's not, like, a recommended thing. But he sort of zeroes in. You can't see me, but I'm kind of moving my arms in, like, almost an asterisk. And that helps him zero in on what he's going to eat because the menu's too overwhelming. And so the way I'm connecting this with like living with ADHD in in the adult world is that people with ADHD have so much to offer if allowed to do it, because that's not a like, you know, normal way, let's say, to (laughs) read a menu if there is such a thing. But it's so good. It's really smart. I can't really do it that way, but I understand what he's talking about. I get pretty overwhelmed when I'm looking at a, a you know, a diner menu. I live in Arizona now, but I used to live in New Jersey and in New York, and there's diners where there's pages. And that can be very overwhelming. I can't stand <laughs> it. I can't stand yeah. it. I mean, I get to the point where I'm so I do what your husband does by looking for things that I like. You know, is there shellfish? Is there fish? Is there any kind of comforty type stuff? And mm-hmm. then I look at the server and I say, okay, I'm thinking about this, this, and this. What should I do? And then I never take <laughs> what he says or she says, but it's a way for me to kind of narrow in on what I want. Mm-hmm. And isn't right. that interesting because you have learned as an adult and without shame, or maybe you've developed the ability to do this without shame, that this is a way that you're successful. And if I could say anything that would be memorable in this entire episode, it would be, you are okay. If you have ADHD, I know that's something that you say too. And it's okay to be different in the way that you look at things. And it's valuable. It's worth it. So stick with the way you look at things. Try to get yourself heard. Try to get your point across and you know, keep going because it's okay to be a little different. Yeah. Stop trying to do things their way if you know their way isn't working for you. Absolutely. Okay. So we talked about exercise, but I'm curious because, you know, when you get your ADHD diagnoses, pretty much the only thing doctors ever do is they just write a script. They don't recommend anything else. But we know there are things like exercise, right? Things beyond medication that really do work for our brains. Can you talk about some of them for us? Absolutely. So I like to say, you know, um, the Latin phrase caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. Anything that I say, you can completely toss in the trash if it doesn't work for you. Uh, Because Mm. some of the recommendations that I might make as a general rule are not going to sound good to every single person. Um, So I say, always think about taking the individual approach. If someone suggests something to you and it doesn't work, okay, you know, tried it a couple of times and that was disastrous, then move on the next thing. And even as a person with ADHD, if you out there used to do something and it was really successful two years ago and it suddenly stops working, you're not crazy. Sometimes you just need to change it up. Okay. That being said, I will uh, first point to the uh, absolute hated thing, I would say, (laughs) when I first discuss it with most people, and that is getting a structure and a routine. Yeah. These things 
really, really help people. Um, because the less routine, the more chaos, the more the creative comes in, the more the, oh, maybe I'll do it this way or get distracted by that and so on. But if you have a very strict schedule and you are invested in doing it that way because it helps you to master your day, then it's something that I would really, really recommend. So a structure, even though it seems sort of like a nightmare to get but started. But it's your with, structure, right? right? You're yes. the one that's going to build it. It's not someone else's structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, exactly. The other thing is I would say work to strength. So I have uh, quite a few college students in my practice. And typically when, when they come in and we talk about the semester, oftentimes I do things like semester long planning with people, but it needs to be week to week as well. Uh, people feel really, I, I'm going to say ashamed and humiliated by the fact that the only time they've ever been able to write their papers or do their assignments is at the last minute. Guess what? The last minute works great for people with ADHD. What you have to do is sort of hack the last minute, if you will. Maybe make up a schedule, throw away the syllabus or put it way aside so you don't remember, and then make the day of the paper that's due, make it, or the project at work, create a new deadline for yourself. So instead of it being due on the 10th, like it actually is, it's actually due on the 9th. You convince yourself of that. You're done on the 9th. It's finished, but you are doing the last minute work on the 8th. You're like, oh my gosh, it's it's due on the 9th, so I have to do it. So you're last minuting, so to speak, on the 8th. And Please you're going to forget the 10th anyway. <laughs> you will. You, you put will. it in your calendar and you start to believe that. Absolutely. And, and like, allow yourself, this is, again, playing to strength, allow yourself to play to that strength that you won't remember what the actual date is. You create the structure that works for you. You don't have to do it the way the syllabus says it necessarily in school. You don't have to do it the way they say at work, as long as it's not going to get you fired from your job, of course. Yeah. So I would say play to strength. Another thing that comes up a lot in terms of ADHD is time blindness. And yep. that's really hard. There have been research studies. Uh, this is just a basic tip. Putting an analog clock or several analog clocks or even digital, I guess digital is probably better for the younger generation because they don't use analog clocks that often, around a room more than one so that, you know, the time is often displayed, like where you're looking, you just happen, your eyes will happen on it, will help with time blindness. There have actually been research studies on this. And I think it's really important because People with ADHD often struggle to know that time has passed or that they're uh, going to be late for something. And it can be, you know, really humiliating and upsetting. And so working on that time blind is just almost by passively seeing the clock. And then you can even get yourself to acknowledge it's such and such verbally, like it's 10, 10 a.m. That really helps with time blindness. That's just like a little tip that I like research-based. You know, it's interesting. You make me think about the fact that, so my father um, was a dentist and he never wore a watch and he was late for everything. And I'm pretty convinced uh, my ADHD actually comes from both parents, but specifically my father. And um, he would say things like, time is fleeting. <laughs> but because he was a dentist, he always went off of, well, you know, it's patience, like he'd come home late or whatever, you know, and we'd expect him and he'd always be late. You know, it's the patience. It's always the patience. Like his schedule was based on the patience. And so what I realized in my home, 
I think we had one clock that was in the family room. And I always hated watches. I never wore them. And you are absolutely right. The minute I got, like, I, my favorite hack, you know, tech hack is my Apple Watch. The minute I got my watch and then started putting um, timers and clocks everywhere, including in my shower, that changed everything for me. I'm still not great with time, but mm-hmm. I understand it so much better. So I completely agree with them, all of them, actually, but I love number four. <laughs> Okay. And let's also say, like, let's say for the the listener who doesn't do great with alarms, because I find this with my son too. He sets all kinds of alarms on his phone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'll come by his room in the morning when he's supposed to be awake. And I'm like, hello, <laughs> your alarm is going off. Um, sometimes you need to do a, like a next level alarm. There are alarms for waking up. That, I know you may have spoken about this on an episode that I haven't listened to that go underneath your mattress that will vibrate your mattress. They're so loud that they would literally be impossible to ignore or where you have to do, um, my son used to do this for school uh, when he went to, like, I keep saying prison, I'll say prison school when he had to be out of the door at seven ten in the morning or whatever, where you have to do a math problem to be able to turn the alarm yes. off. That's, that's actually pretty good. So I, that's in an app, I, I like that. But sometimes, uh, and, and I love what you said because it's like, you were resistant to this notion of needing alarms and timers, but when you decided, all right, it's just getting ridiculous, I, I need to hack this in some way or another, you found the way that worked for you, right? So the Tracy's way may not work for everybody, so you might need a different type of alarm. You might need an egg timer instead of an Apple Watch, or you, mm-hmm. you know, you can do, you know, audience, you can do you. That's the most important thing. And again, I, I guess maybe another uh, pearl I'd like to offer is just it's really okay to be an individual as somebody with ADHD because that's the best way you can shine. You don't have to do it the way everybody says so because oftentimes that can cause resentment and anxiety. I just can't do it the way everybody else does it. And pushback and an irritation, way. right? It's like, yeah. I'm not doing any of it. Um, and I think yeah. that's where we kind of end up. And so we are so resistant that we're not, cause I was like, I don't want structure. I like things to be open and free. But then the mm-hmm. minute I started putting structure in my life, that's when I started to feel so be- much better and so much less anxious. Yes. And you know, with young people and, um, if like any parents of children are listening for ADHD, oftentimes getting the buy-in of your child or even yourself yes. is really to figure out the meaningful advice for yourself instead of telling, it would be asking instead of, uh, being with certainty, it would be researching. So for example, like what do you think would help you wake up most in the morning? Would it be knowing that you can you know, have this yummy breakfast or that you're going to go outside and, and play or do whatever, or you're going to get your exercise in so you don't have to do it uh, after work or what have you. And the other thing I just wanted to say is a big one that I definitely have seen and listened to in terms of your podcast before, which is so excellent. I love it. And if you're first listening to this for the first time, please go listen to all the episodes. Um, but there's, you did an episode on revenge Bedtime procrastination, big issue in ADHD. <laughs> Another right? thing I really balked about sleep, right? <laughs> right. So sleep hygiene is so important because nobody functions well if they don't sleep well. So 
But getting aware of that revenge uh, bedtime procrastination is really critical and knowing that it is your choice to choose a bedtime routine that helps you wind down or helps you to get yourself into bed at a reasonable hour, that's very important as well. And I would say the wind down for people with ADHD brains is so critical and actually brings me to another piece of advice. But I want to give you a chance. Okay, wait. So I just have to know, I, I mean, I just have to ask you, have you seen the alarm clock that jumps off of the, be- the nightstand and then rolls under the bed and across the room and you have to chase it to <laughs> turn it off? <laughs> I love it though. I think that would work really. Is that on Amazon? Where do you get that? That's I got it on Amazon. It's oh, really okay. irritating. Yeah. Yes. And the key is to like, you know, with, with waking up in the morning, uh, morning and, and sometimes people really do have uh, um, another legitimate diagnosis called hypersomnia. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a challenge. And that's not about like, what do you prefer? That's about like, you need to be able to get up. And so sometimes it's a matter of the idea. Like I had, I worked with a university student who really had difficulty getting up and they would sit up in their bed and try to get up. And then they would feel like nauseous and lightheaded because they needed to eat something to have with their ADHD medication. This was a person who was on medication. So we we said, okay, we're going to put food on your bedside table. And they said, I, I don't like most foods in the morning. I said, you can have anything you want. What do you want? Sig Newtons. Okay. The Sig Newtons went by the side of the bed and they got out better. Ah. Or take yeah. their medication early, right? Like an hour before they need to get up. Have you tried that? Mm-hmm. Has that worked? Absolutely. You know, the key for medication most often is to get people to take it consistently if they are on medication. You know, my experience with medication, I, I believe, is similar to yours. We tried my son on various medications. He hated all of them. He hated that feeling that he got that really, yeah. I think, is that sort of hyper-tuned feeling, but not one that was natural. He didn't like that. He wanted oh. to be able to use his own hyper-focus best. Yeah. Okay. So did you have another one or can I ask my next I question? I did. Okay, yeah, no, I had another one, and, and um, I hopefully I'm not going on too much. This is the you one that I think people uh, with ADHD would hate the most, but I highly recommend developing a meditation and mindfulness practice that works for you. It does not have to be sitting still meditation. No can meditate standing at the sink, you know, while you're doing dishes. You can meditate in the shower, but working on a concentrated uh, minute or two at a time of paying attention on purpose without judgment is really key. And the without judgment is very, very critical for everyone, but I would say especially people with ADHD, because the first thing that I always hear when I try this in a session with someone uh, to teach them meditation or mindfulness is my mind wandered immediately and I just couldn't say I was bad at it and I'm not doing it. I said, but that's the point. You know, I always say that. Oh, you need it. Yes. Yes. And neuroplasticity. I mean, if you could understand that you literally can change your brain so it gets easier and easier, and then you have control, right? When you're feeling mm-hmm. super anxious and out of control. Mm-hmm. And in addition with that neuroplasticity, right? Approaching activities that you find scary, dangerous, or difficult with a little bit of nuance, a little bit at a time will change your brain. You know, neurons that, you know, fire together, wire together. That's the expression. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love you, Vanessa. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So you 
we're talking about long COVID. And so I wanted to know, you know, long COVID, trauma and chronic illness, like how does that all factor in and ADHD? So I have a um, a student uh, that's in AOK that has since become a friend. I just love her, Amanda. She collects um, hedgehogs, like real ones. She's absolutely uh-huh. hilarious. But she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Of course, that led to a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. And so from that is, you know, where ADHD came from, right? So it caused it. And so I'm listening to you talking about long COVID and I'm thinking about Amanda and I'm wondering, what can you offer there? Like, how can you help women that are struggling with any of these, all of these? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the big thing with long COVID, uh, because there's um, fairly limited research out at this time, is it's just basically the, all the cognitive deficits are lumped together in something called brain fog. Um, and with MS, with multiple sclerosis, uh, oftentimes because of the plaques throughout the nervous system, so the same idea, brain fog, difficulties in the frontal lobe, oftentimes planning and executive function can look like ADHD or can worsen ADHD, I suppose. I'm trying to think. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who has multiple sclerosis and ADHD, but I can imagine that would be a challenge. So first I want to say, I read an exciting study that I would like to share, and that is uh, the use of video games and computer games to help people with brain fog issues. So I recommend, especially if you love video games, to play them and to try to find the problem-solving ones that you enjoy and use them as brain exercise. Even if it's something that you haven't done before, there's been some pretty good research that's getting started in programs to rehabilitate cognitive difficulties that uh, video games will really help. So that's one thing I would suggest. The other thing is beginning to develop a menu of strategies that work for you, again, that mean something to you. So for some people, that means carrying around a little notebook, even if you have a phone, But if it's something that you need to remember and you have a place to put a notebook, writing it down in a notebook sometimes works for some people because it sort of teases out the things that are like critically needed to be remembered. That goes in the notebook. Everything else you could put in your phone or you could play with your phone. That's that's just one potential. Or figuring out strategies that will help you to adapt to the cognitive issues. You can't fix these things right away. So it's more important rather than rehabilitating immediately to adapt to the issue and to be successful with the adaptation, if that makes sense. I just want to make sure that I understand. Yes, Mm -hmm. of course, they have to adapt. They have to build these strategies, right, for the here and now. However, in your comments about, you know, the, uh, the research on video games and computer games, it sounds like, again, neuroplasticity is at play. And so you can build that, you know, prefrontal cortex back up or, you know, the area that either COVID or whatever has attacked. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, when I, when I am speaking about learning to adapt in the short term, it's really important to adapt to the issues at hand because you don't want to develop discour- further discouragement or depression. But you yeah. are absolutely right. Our brains are incredibly plastic and there's tons of great research uh, for people who have strokes 
And, you know, stroke and long COVID and even multiple sclerosis and other neurological issues can have the same look because we're talking about vascular problems in the brain. So when you bring up neuroplasticity, you're absolutely correct. So the rehabilitative aspect being uh, working on video games to help your problem solving, to help your frustration tolerance, to help the length of your concentration grow a little at a time. But also maybe you're the head of your household or you are responsible for cooking dinner every night where you live or you have classes to do. So those things require adaptation. So it's a combined approach that I would advocate. Like, Don't force yourself to work without adaptation while you're trying to improve your cognitive and executive skills. That's so hopeful though, right? That, okay, it's the mm -hmm. here and now, adapt to the issue, but there is hope out there if you're willing to try some strategies and see what works for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I say find success in the short term, but also be willing to strengthen and grow towards the long term. And that's where like an occupational therapist can be helpful with specific type of exercises uh, and uh, activities that are built around learning things that you need to do and doing them better, but also doing the things you need to do now successfully and without drama or difficulty. You know, I don't know if I, I read the same study that you're talking about, um, the video game study, but I thought that I read it was really quick though, too, like in under a month. Is that true? Uh, I don't remember the time. Time? I think we I think it's something that I originally read in the New York Times and then I went looking for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like it was something that was going on in New York if if that uh, if we are talking about the same thing, but I would I would imagine that it would be a short term study because mm -hmm. there is no long term study right. on long COVID. Yes. And so the bottom line is this. There is hope for people trying to get better with cognitive difficulties, whether that is executive function problems that are related to ADHD or long COVID plus ADHD or some other chronic illness or trauma that causes blocks. These are all things yeah. that you can't grow around. We can't make the part of the brain that's holding the trauma necessarily stop having trauma triggers, for instance. Yeah. But we can't teach people strategies to deal with it and be successful in their life. And when you get more success and mastery, you get a better mood, you get less anxiety, you get more success. And what breeds success? Success. So yeah. Like that. So do you work with women with ADHD who also have trauma? Oh, sure. Yeah. Actually, you know, in my practice, so I've been working in my private practice, uh, really beginning with the uh, pandemic. I was working at my hospital job up until the pandemic, but I really personally, with my own anxieties, I just didn't feel comfortable mm -hmm. uh, working in a hospital setting, really frankly. And I had to accept that for me, it was traumatizing. So yeah. um, I looked into a lot of trauma uh, at that point. I've always had an interest uh, in trauma and recovery. Actually, there's a book uh, called Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman that's about borderline personality disorder, which sometimes people can have with ADHD, which can make things right. rough because there's right. an emotional roller coaster. 
and trauma, you know. So, but what I've learned to to wrap that whole big kind of stuff I was just saying together, trauma uh, is an experience that virtually all people have. The big T trauma being like a life threatening event uh, where you know, let's say you're in a car accident and you almost die. Uh, the little T trauma being the uh, complex type traumas, things that feel threatening, that are upsetting, that aren't processed or dealt with. So I have really, across the board, met virtually no one who has experienced no trauma whatsoever. So I feel like it's really important to acknowledge that. Yep. And I forgot your question. Especially, especially women with ADHD, right? All those little yes. cuts over time, they can end up in, you know, being one big T trauma. Correct. That's where I was headed. So you're absolutely right. Thank you. You know, and by the way, this is a very good time for me to mention this. As you can see, and we're talking about, right? Look, I happen to be like the one rare guest who does not have ADHD, but hopefully is showing a lot of experience with ADHD. But I also can feel really stupid and and disorganized or just totally lose my train of thought. And so this feeling of being especially a dope or whatever, it's very important for, for self-esteem purposes to understand that the experiences of a person with ADHD, when they go through all this trauma in childhood and not being understood, it builds a sense of like being attacked in advance. But frankly, all of us can be kind of confused and disorganized at times. Not to minimize ADHD, but just to say it really does happen in most brains. Yeah. And it's not you. You're not stupid. You know, we all have things we're brilliant at and things that we struggle with. So let's focus on the strengths like Vanessa told us. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I agree because if you focus on the weaknesses and the difficulties that you're having, that's what becomes really magnified in your mind. But if you focus on the fact that you can be good at something or that tasks can be broken into small pieces that are hard for you, and that's another thing occupational therapists do, it's called, we call it fancy way. Fancy way we call it is grading activities, breaking things into small pieces. Uh, you can be successful at the same things that you're watching everybody do where it looks like so easy. Um, you know, you can be successful. You know, I just love this whole field of occupational therapy. And I didn't really know anything at all about it other than that one experience with Marcus because it is so problem-solving focused. It's not the pathology, right? It's about, okay, this is what happened. Let's make it as right as we can. And then, so we'll build the workarounds here, but then let's also build and make whatever, you know, your problem is, let's make it go away or make it go away as much as we can by building strategies. That was not articulate, but you know what I'm saying. No, it was articulate. And either you are the most brilliant and and, and like analytical mind, or I explained OT correctly. And frankly, in this case, I hope that I explained (laughs) OT correctly for others. Um, because you just, you said one of the pieces that really kind of defines occupational therapists, and that is we meet people where they are and we're not, you know, crying over what was lost. We're not saying you're not good enough. We are literally like, okay, here we are at point A and you want to get to point C. How do we break this up? help you be successful and get to point C. And if you go to point A, point five along the way, instead of going straight to point B, that's okay too. And we'll adjust it along the way. You're a hundred percent correct. It's a, 
both a rehabilitative and an adaptive approach. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I wish more people knew about occupational therapy as an approach where it could really, really help people to be able to get their lives and their capabilities together. But it, it is it is a tough challenge, I think, that the Occupational Therapy Association from the United States at least has with getting the word across. Yeah, I agree. So mm-hmm. what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I would say the key to living successfully with ADHD is to accept that you have ADHD and be okay that you have ADHD and then work along with your strengths and help yourself to adapt where there are difficulties. Brilliant. So where can people find you, Vanessa, if they want to know more about you and what you do? I have a website and it is my first and last name. So it's vanessagorelkin.com. And uh, you can reach me there. I'm also on Instagram at humanist underscore therapist. And those are the best ways to reach out to me. And I love to hear from people who have listened to podcasts that I have been on. So please don't hesitate to be in touch if you have a question, um, because I also offer a free consultation in my practice if someone would like to work with me and I can be of assistance to them or to someone that they care about. Wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to go through that again. It's Vanessa, okay, how do you say it again? Goralkin. <laughs> I will not get it right. <laughs> I have it in my brain a certain way, and that's just the way it's going to stay, and it's locked in there. Okay, it's spelled V-A-N-E-S-S-A-G-O-R-E-L-K-I-N.com. I got that right? Got it right. And then on Instagram, you're humanist underscore therapist. Right. At humanist underscore therapist. Okay. So this will be in the show notes if you missed it. But Vanessa, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I'm just, I just love what you do. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun and a great chat. So. That's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Vanessa, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.